Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to Beyond Black History Month. I'm your host, Femi Redwood. Gentrification. 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 Conversations about gentrification and the loss of affordable housing are not anything new. But what's rarely talked about is how this kind of displacement hurts small business owners and the longtime community members that rely on them. These shops provide resources that just aren't found in other neighborhoods. I mean, you can't just walk into any store and find products for kinky curly hair. But as black neighborhoods gentrify, these black-owned shops become incredibly vulnerable. Oh no! Meet Dawn Harris Martine, also known as Grandma, but not just to those related to her. No. Okay. Yes. Listen. Write that one down. I want to get that. She's the founder of Grandma's Place, a bookshop and toy store in Harlem. Walking into the store, you're greeted by full shelves and kids, reading, playing, and learning. We represent everybody. There's a, when you go and look at the dolls, every doll back there is represented. Asian dolls, Muslim dolls, black and white dolls, Spanish dolls. So that's what it is. Everybody's represented. It's not just a store but a resource to the community. I have a section called Children's Concerns. So a kid, a parent comes in here, they're moving. Okay, we got a book about kids moving. We, you know, about sibling rivalry, we've got a sibling rivalry. We have whatever, divorce, we got a book about divorce. Whatever that you're dealing with, there's a book that you can sit down with your kid and talk to them. Grandma's place wasn't always a place, nor was it always a book and toy store. She says for about 25 years, it was a vacant, boarded up space. This whole building the, from to the corner, all of that was empty. In 1999, the owner finally decided to renovate. And Grandma asked if she could have it and turn it into a literacy center. Before Grandma was an entrepreneur, she was a teacher. She lived in Harlem, taught in Harlem, and knew Harlem. So she knew what it needed. And I noticed that the kids that were doing well in school were not brilliant children. They were children that had been read to and whose parents actually took the time to answer questions to them. So when I found out that the other children's parents could not read, I decided that I, we needed a literacy center here. So that's why when I got the opportunity to, I opened a literacy center. 
Keeping the center open through the years wasn't always easy, especially when the rent increased. In 1999, it was $524 a month. But after five years, it doubled. And according to real estate records, that was pretty common. I combed through old reports from the Real Estate Board of New York, also known as Rebney. There wasn't data available for 1999 when Grandma opened her store, but there are reports for 2005. So in 2005, the average commercial rent on 125th Street in Harlem was $87 per square foot. In 2020, the average was $149 per square foot. To put that in perspective, to rent a 500 square foot store in Harlem in 2005 would have cost $43,500. In 2020, $74,500. So when grandma's store rent doubled, she knew she had to make some changes. I was a new teacher in the Board of Ed and I was using my Board of Ed money to pay the rent for this store. When they doubled the rent, I knew I couldn't do that anymore. She needed some kind of income. And so I thought of books because by that time I had a collection of over 25,000 volumes of books. But she still couldn't sell enough books to pay the rent. So then I started bringing in educational toys and games. And so the combination of educational toys and games, it managed to eke through every year. We managed to pay our bills. Grandma didn't keep her store to make money, but she kept it because of her love for Harlem, and that connectivity is often lost during gentrification. To understand how the displacement of businesses is tied to the displacement of people, I connected with Dr. Willa Lung Amam. It's hard of saving small businesses. She's an author, professor, and has studied urban planning and gentrification extensively. She's also the director of the Small Business Anti-Displacement Network. She says when apartment rents go up, the cost of commercial spaces will also increase. She says gentrification isn't just the movement of new people in a neighborhood, but also new capital. It's the increase in development, and it's also the shift in public policy that is incentivizing redevelopment in that neighborhood. A vast upgrade in housing housing and commercial stock, new offices, and transportation investments in a really short amount of time. That means that land values are going to increase and ultimately rents are going to increase. That affects not only residents, it affects commercial tenants. A lot of times those small businesses are going to really struggle to survive. And they're going to struggle to survive not only because their rent is increasing, but also because the landlords all of a sudden are looking at those small businesses like, hmm, we can get a boutique business in here that's most likely going to pay a little bit higher rent. We don't necessarily know if you're our most valuable tenant anymore. The cycle can get predatory. Landlords trying to kick tenants out not only of their homes, but also of their businesses. These tactics are similar to what we see in housing, harassment from landlords. A sort of lack of maintenance, intentionally trying to not upgrade a property in order to just make it impossible that businesses are able to stay when you're not getting mold remediation, when you're not getting like your pest management addressed. We also see that landlords are just not extending long-term leases, whereas they might have given five-year lease to business before. They're only giving, you know, six-month leases to businesses in order to ensure that they're able to turn over a unit. They are intentionally creating vacancies so that they can do large-scale redevelopment. 
When rents are higher, businesses that had lower margins but were vital are no longer profitable enough to stay. And if they raise prices, it may become unaffordable to the existing tenants. In addition, Dr. Longamam says in many of these black and brown neighborhoods that are vulnerable, a lot of the property is owned by just a few landlords. And when property values increase, they leave the buildings empty rather than leasing them. This allows them to combine parcels in the future for a major redevelopment. creating intentional vacancies. Most commercial tenants don't have many protections. Again, in the residential sphere, we see more attention to protections for renters and making sure that those predatory practices are tempered by some sort of legislation. And even the shopkeepers who own their buildings, there's an increase in property tax. Residents are no longer able to get the goods and services they need because as neighborhoods gentrify, new residents likely want something different. We've seen black barber shops and black beauty salons close, longtime eateries like soul food restaurants. You're really seeing a lot of those businesses close and be replaced by more chain restaurants, more chain stores and boutique kind of businesses that are less, more expensive for residents and less sort of catered to the the needs of established residents. The businesses are more catered to the needs of the newer residents who are more high income, professional, educated. And so it's changing the very foundations of what we call a neighborhood. Black owned small businesses tend to hire locally, give back to charities and even sponsor or host neighborhood events. That's not always the case when new businesses come in that are not as closely connected to a community. And that affects the stability of the people who live there and the local economy. We undervalue the local circulation of dollars in neighborhoods. A local economy is making sure that local residents and owners are invested in the neighborhood, not just whether or not the dollars are actually circulating. That's whether somebody is actually fixing up their buildings. That's whether or not the owner is also invested in staying in that neighborhood and providing services for that neighborhood. She says most small businesses don't survive, but when there is an established small business, they're doing something right, something that's not guaranteed with the next business. They figured out, you know, a service, a product, a, a vital contributor to the surrounding community in which they sit. Micro businesses under 10 employees, those that sort of are what we call sort of the local small businesses. And those are the ones that are so vital and so vulnerable to protect. But when you have those small businesses that have been in a neighborhood for 20 years, 30 years. They're there because they're providing a vital service to residents, but they're still struggling many times to just keep afloat. Never in all of these years, never made a cent. Every year at the end of the year, my accountant said, I don't know why the government allows you to have this business because you're you're not making any money. This, This would be deemed a hobby at any other place, but they let you, the government continues to let you run this as a toy store. I think maybe one year, I think last year, I came out ahead. But it's it's not for that. It's about being in the neighborhood and being here for the kids and for the parents. So it's it's been it's metamorphosis. It has changed 
over the years, but every time it's changed, it's changed because of the needs in the community and the parents and the kids. Part of the reason grandma was even able to keep this store is because she didn't have to worry about housing. She won her brownstone, which is next door to her store, in an affordable lottery back in 1986. There was some kind of thing that said it was a lottery for the brownstone, and this was the last day of the thing. And I filled out the application and went, didn't think anything more about it. And I was at a workshop and the phone rings and, and it was an evening workshop. And my daughters talked to me on the phone for about 20 minutes. And as they were getting off, they said, oh, by the way, the people from the brownstone, you want a brownstone. And I screamed so loudly that all the people in the workshop came and said, what happened when I told them? They said, you need to go home because when you're no good to us at this point now. So I got in a cab and I'm coming back home and it's about 11 o'clock at night and the cab pulls up and we're coming down this block and a police car, we're going real slowly because I, I asked the cab driver to pull by because they told me the address and I wanted to see what this building was gonna look like. So we're in this strange neighborhood and the cop car pulls up behind me and, and they say, what are you doing here, buying drugs? I said, no. I said, I just won this brownstone in the brownstone lottery. And the cop said, really? So he goes back to his car and he takes the, the floodlight from the side of the car and shines it up to the front of the building. And we look at this building for the first time. The brownstone helped her when times were especially tough. Something else that helped, thinking of her mom. I say to whom much is given, much is expected. So this was a gift. That brownstone was a gift. The, uh, the ability to be able to be here to do this was a gift. My mother was a chambermaid. My mother had three jobs, a single parent. She had two kids. She worked three, two full-time jobs and a weekend job in order to give us piano lessons and violin lessons and art lessons and things that she felt that we needed. So I don't understand giving up and I come from that lady. So. When I started this literacy center and this toy store, I said I was in for the long haul. And when the store didn't make enough money, I said, well, God provided me with this brownstone. I had two rental apartments there, so I just used some of the rent from the building, paid my mortgage and put the rest of it in the store. But not every small business owner also has apartments they can rent to bring in money. So what's the solution? Dr. Lungamam says when it comes to small businesses, we tend to think about it as market forces, that they open and close all the time and another one will just come and replace it. But she says that thinking is flawed. We don't understand the stabilizing forces that businesses provide, the kind of community identity and services and goods and affordability that those businesses provide to a neighborhood that are essential to the community identity, to circulating dollars back into communities, and that ultimately allow the residents to stay in place as well. She says public policymakers need to reframe the issue from a market problem to one that hurts families. The solution includes various municipalities working together, from community development corporations to tax credits and everything in between. It's not just one level of legislation. It's many levels of legislation. And there's not like one tool that's right for every community. There's a need for a robust set of tools and policies and making sure 
that there is equity across those policies and access to those tools for small businesses that is needed. A few years ago, the New York City Comptroller's Office found that between 2000 and 2015, in gentrifying neighborhoods, there was a 45% jump in business. But, and this is a very big but, the report found that growth was very uneven, finding that only 3% of local business owners are black. Fast forward to the pandemic, when Black-owned businesses closed at twice the rate of other businesses. And while there has been recent growth, analysts say they don't believe it will be enough to keep up with gentrification. As I researched this topic, the one overarching theme I found time and time again in paper after paper is that small businesses don't get enough support. And then when your small business is black, POC, or immigrant owned, those are the first to fail, which is odd. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.